Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Range to Capital podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Range to Capital. With me as always is my co-host and the founder of Range to Capital, Chris Demuth. It is Thursday, February 11th. Today we're going to spend some time talking about the basics of merger arbitrage by going through one of the stocks that we currently have a long position in, Green Mountain Coffee. The ticker is GMCR, and they are the people who make cured K-Cups. Uh, Chris, why don't I set the stage for the conversation before we get into it? I think we wanted to talk about this for two reasons. First, we've been talking about merger arbitrage a lot on the podcast, on the podcast, so we thought it'd be helpful for listeners to have a podcast that explained exactly what we're talking about. And then second, markets are down 10% plus year to date, and we're getting a lot of emails. What should I do? How do I respond? How do I kind of make safer investments in a market decline? And uh, merger arbitrage is really attractive in rocky markets because it has tight, tight payoffs and tight, positive payoffs and tight time frames. So uh, I see you're ready to talk. Go ahead. Jump in. So you should hide under your desk. <laughs> weep quietly like a baby and if you have any kind of stuffed animal or blanket that can help to comfort the pain Uh, two other ideas are to generally uh, look at arbitrage opportunities uh, including cash arbitrage opportunities specifically uh, Green Mountain uh, that we are talking about today Um, I think of arbitrage how I use it as a subset of event-driven value investing. And the reason why I say that is that outside of arbitrage, we're always looking at what is this business worth? Well, in arbitrage, you get the uh, teacher's answer book. (laughs) Uh, A a guy shows up, not uh, just somebody in a bathrobe eating Cheetos in his basement trading on his E-Trade account that thinks it's worth a little more or a little less, but some guy shows up with the actual money or financing and says, no, I would like to pay you $92 for all the shares. Uh, And so that is what that is the correct answer to what we should have been trying to figure out anyways, which is what is it worth to a, a rational uh, investor yep. that has the money or the financing. So, so that's the definition of – that's all exactly right. Definition of merger arbitrage. Company A comes and says, hey, company B, I would like to buy you. There are two types. It can be a stock-for-stock stock deal where they'll say, hey, we'll give you one share of our stock for every one share of your stock. Mm-hmm. Or what we generally lean towards a little bit, I think, is cash deals where in Green Mountain's case, it's the buyer came and said, hey, Green Mountain, here is $92 per share for mm-hmm. each of your deals. Uh, so it sounds great. Hey, we're going to get $92 in this tight time frame. In Green Mountain's case, it's probably by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what are the risks that can happen in one of these merger arbitrage? Uh, well, the risks include financing. If they don't have the cash, uh, mm-hmm. there might be a problem with credit. Uh, there might be a regulatory problem. Yep. Uh, there's some part of the government might include an agency that uh, prohibits it. Uh, there might be a materially adverse change, yep. a bad thing. Uh, in uh, my one of my favorite books, Joel Greenblatt's uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, he describes merger arbitrage. He's had a bad experience <laughs> or two in merger arbitrage, one of which involved a sinkhole where the company fell into the earth right before the deal <laughs> was about to close, uh, which qualifies both as material and adverse. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, something bad, something big exactly. and bad can happen. Uh, and uh, these can kill deals. So, so it's not, it is not 92, it is the promise of 92. Yes, exactly. So in Green Mountain's case, the shares trade for 90 right now. 
you will, if the deal closes, you will get 92. But all of these risks that you've described are the risks that could cause the deal to break. Yes. And then you would not get 90. You would get whatever Green Mountain trades for in the stock market after the deal breaks, which is likely to be materially lower. If you think of the cliche, a bird in hand is better than two in the bush, merger arbitrage is answering the question, well, how much better is it? Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. So you're investing 90. Uh, and when you do that, you're saying... The market might be pricing in a 95% probability or 90% probability this deal closes and I get 92. I think it's higher than the market invest is why you would buy a deal like this. And, and it's a little different than what Rangeley Capital normally does and that we normally are looking at something where the market implied probability is 50 or 60 or 70, where we have much more room to be more positive. This one is a high level of confidence already in the market and we're even higher yep okay so i think we've gone over those are the basics of merger mm-hmm. arbitrage opportunity but kind of where the real trick to merger arbitrage is assessing the risk right mm-hmm. there's a capped upside the deal price and the real thing is determining what the downside is and what the likelihood of the downside is and i think we do it in three ways we we measure the risk by valuation methods by the logic behind the deal and behind uh, and by how strong the merger agreement is. And by doing all three of those, you can determine how big your downside is and what the probability of hitting your downside is. Uh, so why don't we start at valuation? You said company comes in and says, hey, I'll pay you $92 per share. You've got that valuation. How do you judge valuation on the downside? Um, well, uh, a quick and dirty, the dumb-dumb answer is, what was the pre-deal or at least pre-deal speculation value? Absolutely. And then you tweak it for what happens to the market, comparable companies, what happens to that company's fundamentals, yep. and other things to say, well, uh, is it X plus 10% or minus 20, 20% uh, depending on the circumstance? That There's a lot of other things that we do, but that's kind of the dumb-dumb version. Yep. So in this case, Green Mountain was trading for about 50 before the deal uh, was announced. Uh, the market has been volatile. It, it's down about 10%. So I think your quick answer would be, well, it would probably trade to about 45 or 40 in the event deal broke. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, if the deal breaks, it would go down even further because the deal break would have a fundamental, uh, would have something fundamental to say about the deal. For instance, Constant contact endurance. Constant contact. You like bringing that one up. I bring it up all the time. That's true. It's all we're going to talk about from now on. But if that deal had broken, it was likely because A, it couldn't get financed, and B, there was an SEC investigation, which suggests that the downside would have been much further than the pre-deal price. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about valuation. What are some other things aside from kind of the pre-deal price that you can use to think about valuation? Uh, alternative bits. Exactly. So we're going to talk about this a little bit, but... In the proxy statement, you can read the background and you can see if the company was shopped and if anyone else was offering bids. And you get pretty comfortable if you say, oh, this company's getting sold for 100 and four other bidders offered 98 and these guys just beat them by a, a dollar or two. You feel kind of bad if you're like, oh, this company's getting sold for 100 and every other bidder offered 65. In that case, you're like, oh gosh, I, I'm, I can be in for some real trouble here if this deal breaks. Anything else? Um, I think that's good for now. I don't know if I'm supposed to, if this is a good time to say, but I'd also say that uh, if you're looking at the target um, and there's any deal problem, you really uh, uh, need to look at if the reasons why the buyer 
was buying it or next attacked. next yeah. thing we're going to Chris okay. next thing we're going. so I'll just wrap up on valuation the sure. last thing you can look at is uh, look at the proxy or look at what peers are trading and say you know if all the peers are trading for 10x earnings and the deal is at 11x you feel pretty good that it's reasonable if all the peers are trading at 10x and the deal is at 25x you might say oh the valuation is kind of crazy there uh, okay so deal logic let's go to deal logic and you were kind of leading me to that anyway uh, we think, does a deal make strategic sense? And why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, there is a market for corporate control. We're generally sellers. I mean, we like to own a business as a business. And if somebody wants to pay premium, you, the history of M&A is one that is fairly fraught with uh, failures for most sophisticated reasons why somebody might want to take over a company. Uh Cost savings tend to be real. Other reasons to do a deal tend to be somewhat less so. Uh, but there's a market. People will pay, and there's some ways to tease out how much they will pay uh, for control. Um, but they get something for that, too. Uh, they get cost savings. They get, in theory, revenue synergies. And as they come up with the reasons why they want to do the deal, they're willing to pay, in many cases, more than the market price for a company. Uh, and Part of our job is to analyze if those are legitimate or less legitimate reasons to pay a premium. So there are two types of buyers. There are strategic buyers who would have strategic rationale for buying a company. Uh, we are both in the same industry. If we combine for some reason, our combined companies will be worth more. Mm -hmm. And then there are financial buyers, which is generally private equity buyers who come in and say, hey, we're going to buy you. We're going to put a bunch of leverage on you. We might try and cut costs to the bones. And by doing that, we can kind of financially engineer a profit. Mm -hmm. And financial buyers, they're much, those deals are much riskier because when markets get choppy, those deals are much more likely to break. Whereas a strategic buyer is like to say, well, a little market volatility doesn't change the fact our two companies are worth more together. Would you say that's about right? Okay. Yep. So just turning to Green Mountain, uh, we forgot to do Green Mountain valuation. So Green Mountain on valuation to me, and you can say if you feel differently, the valuation looks expensive to me. It's at a premium to where it's pure trade. It's at a premium to where previous deals in the industry have happened. And it was at a huge premium. The shares were at 50 and the deals for 92. Generally, like a 20 to 30% premium is typical. That's an almost 80% premium, big premium. In terms of deal logic on Green Mountain Coffee, actually, I can see some decent deal logic here. The buyer owns several consumer coffee brands. They own Pete's Coffee, Caribou Coffee, a couple others. Green Mountain Coffee obviously has K-Cups. You can see what they're thinking. Combine a consumer coffee brand with kind of the K-Cups. There could be synergies there. There could be cost synergies from buying coffee. There could be advertising synergies. There could even be revenue synergies from selling K-Cups and Pete's or something. I'm not sure. But you could see how there's strategic rationale to this deal. So that gives you comfort the deal will go through. And then I think the most important part, part Chris, is looking through the merger agreement and the proxy. Uh, why don't... Why don't you go run with that? Sure. Uh, so the merger agreement is the prenup. Uh, if you are in a deal that uh, makes sense to both of you, which by definition it does on day one, uh, and it continues to make sense, maybe even it makes more sense, maybe there is more value than you thought uh, a few months into it, uh, you wouldn't need a merger agreement. You don't yeah. need a piece of paper to force you to do something that two people want to uh, do. Uh, these are all presumably consenting adults. The problem is, when anything goes wrong, as often it does. Uh, you know, something that seems, when you read a merger agreement for the first time, it seems like it's just 
absurd minutiae. Yep. But what's amazing is even these very high-priced helpers will often just fail to contemplate something that will happen four months later. Yep. The world changes more than even very expert professionals anticipate sometimes. And one of the things I always tell companies looking at doing deals is, boy, the more you can contemplate before there's a problem, the better you're going to be at dealing with that problem when it happens. So in the merger agreement, what we, we like to refer to merger agreements as either tight or loose. Mm-hmm. A tight agreement is one that it almost binds the buyer to completing the agreement no matter what. Yes. A loose agreement is one that the buyer can very easily walk away from with no issues if they decide they don't want to do the deal. Exactly. So some of the things you're looking for is what happens if the deal breaks up? Uh, how can you break up a deal? And does anyone have to pay anyone else in these deals? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. And each of these issues, in a sense, is a twofer. Uh, It is both something if this goes to court, you can defend your rights with, but also you apparently got into a deal with somebody who's willing to give you those rights. Yep. So uh, in this case, a tight agreement, uh, it was not highly conditional. Yes. It was not, for one example, it was not conditioned on financing, say, which both makes it harder to walk away, but also says this is a really, they weren't buying an option on your company. Yep. They were trying to buy your company. But, so almost all the deals we discuss on here, I can't think of one we haven't, we've done, we've even looked at recently, are going to have no financing condition. So a financing condition would say, hey, we've reached an agreement to buy you but we don't have enough money. We think we can go to a bank and borrow money to buy you. Uh, If it's not conditioned on financing, you either say, hey, we have enough money in the bank, or you have a letter from a bank that says, hey, we're going to loan you the money to buy this. Uh, In this case, there is no financing condition. They have banks who will give them the money to buy the company. Financing conditions are huge because as soon as the rocky markets get rocky, if there's a financing condition, you just walk away because you can't raise the debt. It, it was more common before your time. It's also more yes. common in some foreign markets. I do see it fairly regularly still in China. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole range between something that is fully conditioned on financing to getting the banks to offer a highly confident letter yep. Yep. and other versions of that in the middle. Yep. So uh, let's talk about material adverse change clause. I think you, you mentioned that. There is the how strong is it, what it's carved out in in the material adverse change clause. Why don't you take that? Sure. Uh, A a MAC, a material adverse uh, change clause or material adverse effect uh, clause. Uh, If you have two seconds and don't have a third second available to read this, well, then you shouldn't be investing in the (laughs) stock. But in theory, when you're looking through it, uh, you look at the carve out. So uh, the material adverse change uh, describes what would have to be so bad as to allow uh, one or the other party to walk away from the deal? Yep. And then the carve out is the part that says, let me enumerate all the things that are not within the material adverse change that is not a good enough excuse. And so if you want a tight agreement, you want a very short material adverse change with a very detailed and long carve out. So tons of things that do not qualify as material adverse change. Right, that if you try to walk, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, And then a loose agreement would be a big Mac clause and a very small uh, carve out. Yep. Okay, and uh, in this case, the material adverse change clause, it, it's, uh, it's a short MAC with a lot of carve-outs. It carves out almost uh, everything you can But there, there are some agreements. For instance, uh, Walgreens Rite Aid from memory comes to mind. 
if Rite Aid's EBITDA declines by more than 10%, Walgreens can walk. Yeah. That's a very loose material adverse change. 10% is not a lot. In, it, it's a consumer business, so Rite Aid should be relatively stable. But that's not a lot. Uh, a tight one says, doesn't matter what their finances are. You've got to close this deal. That you can't, even if their revenue went to zero and they were just lighting money on fire, you'd still have to close the deal. I'd also say, Andrew, when you're looking at these, to really hone in on some of the unusual language because you really then can focus on what they were focusing on, and that's what in the background to the deal uh, really was important to them. And we're going to dive into background to the deal in a second. There are just two more that I want to quickly dive into, which are kind of legalese, but specific performance mm-hmm. and definition of efforts. Why don't you take this? Sure. Uh, specific performance uh, is something that should really be understood. In this case, both parties have it. It basically means contractually you are bound to do this deal, not an approximation. You can't pay off to get out of it. Uh, if there's a payoff, even a substantial one, somebody can simply walk away and then negotiate for some fraction of the payoff or breakup fee. But in this case, you are required to do this deal. And in Delaware, people have gone through litigation and have been forced to close a deal. And so either that will happen, in which case the target shareholders get what they originally are going to get, or the threat of it means you might as well act amicably with the people you're going to be working with full-time in a few days anyways. And one of the things that can be very powerful in the case of is if it's a stock-for-stock deal, it can be very powerful because in this case, the deal doesn't close. uh, You pay someone, which would be great for shareholders. But a stock-for-stock deal, the threat of specific performance can be very powerful because you can't – if you say, hey, I want to combine company A and company B into one company – there's no payout you can do that would have done specific performance that would have given you that short of closing the deal. It also keeps people in their best behavior because it makes it even more uh, unpalatable to just destroy the other company and their <laughs> and, shares and then because get those shares it. might be yours in a few days. <laughs> uh, definition of hurts. You want to go through that real quick? Uh, sure. Uh, efforts. Uh, there is a range of efforts. Uh, and again, this is like a prenup, but you can uh, be, uh, in certain cases, best efforts are required. Best efforts say a hell or high water. Uh, you have to do anything conceivable to solve a specific problem that might arise in the merger agreement. And then it goes down. There's different words associated with it. But then you could say, well, I don't want my best efforts. How about my reasonable efforts? Yep. How about my commercially reasonable efforts? Uh, and uh then, then you can have efforts, and some efforts have carve-outs for what is required and what isn't, uh, but it is what in litigation would be the standard for how hard a merger party has to try to comply with a certain condition of the deal. And uh, let's just go, G- in GMCR's case, it is a super tight uh, agreement. There's no financing. There's specific performance for almost everything, best efforts, everything. Yeah. It's a great agreement. And the reason why that is, is because if you read the background of the merger, you can see how a merger came to be and which advisors kind of dominated in the agreement. And I'll let you uh, jump in on backgrounds to agreement. Sure. The the buyer uh, worked with Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and their part of the contract was negotiated by Weil Gottschall. The uh, target uh, was working with Credit Suisse, Merrill Lynch, and Bank of America, but they were represented by Sibley Austin. Uh, disclosure, my dad was a uh, antitrust lawyer for them, and they are my family's uh, mm-hmm. uh, counsel. But in any event, they wrote this contract. Yeah. So the short version was every 
uh, uh, and Tittle. Every uh, everything was was this was on their terms. The buyer was concerned that there would be other bidders, and so they basically came in over the top to prevent an auction. Exactly. So the reason is, if you read the background section, uh, JAB came in and said, "Hey, Green Mountain, we want to buy you. Your shares are at fifty. Here's ninety-two, a huge premium, and we're going to give you a contract that almost guarantees we close." The reason we're doing all of this is because we do not want you to shop. We do not want you to go ask any other buyers to see if this is the right price, if anyone else will pay. If you're willing to do that, we will give you a huge premium and a merger agreement we can't get out of. And the other thing we didn't mention in the merger agreement section is one thing you want to see is if the deal doesn't close, how mu- who has to pay who and how much. In JB's case, they have specific performance in all of these things, so they don't have to pay Green Mountain anything because, in general, Green Mountain they have to buy Green Mountain. If Green Mountain decides not to go with JB, they have to pay JB a huge fee, and that was one of JB's requirements because mm-hmm. we want to buy you, we want a tight agreement. If you decide to go with anyone else after this is announced, you have to pay us a lot of money, and that was really the only thing they were concerned with. If you read the background, they said we want guarantee we close, and if we don't, you have to pay us a ton of money. Anybody who owns this stock should read and reread this section. Uh, there's three things that will just jump right off the page at you. One is the buyer, a word, a short word, a three-letter word, any. The buyer said, we will take any antitrust risk. Yep. We will take any financing risk. This is not normally what you demand of yourself. It's normally what you kind of beg and fail to get from the other party. So they wanted no risk. They wanted no shop. Where their concern was, was in alternatives. And if you go all the way at the end of the background section, what's very clear is where the real heat was, was not over whether it was 9150 or 9250. It was exactly what the conditions are that the target can take yep. another deal. And that was something that the uh, folks at Wild Gottschall were very concerned about. So there are two takeaways. In merger agreements in general, reading the background st- uh, the background of the merger is hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. And price is not the only thing that's negotiated. Tightness of agreement, what happens if the agreement breaks, who does what, is just is almost just as important as price. If you're willing to be flexible on one, you can get something on the other. And the other thing is, if you read the background, we mentioned it earlier, you can see who was bidding for what. In this case, there was no shop. That's the only way JAB would do this deal. And some other deals we've talked about, you can see hey, some other parties were talking and they were offering a similar price. That's how you gain comfort that the deal makes sense and will go through. If other people thought it would go through at that price, it will probably happen. If other people didn't, the buyer might get a little antsy. Mm -hmm. Chris, we are way over, which I think we thought we were going to be, but uh, any last words, anything to wrap up? Nope. All right, great. Uh, Thanks for listening to us. We really wanted to get this podcast out there to kind of refer to in the future on how to do M&A. Uh, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. If you already follow us, please rate us. If you've already rated us, please refer us to a friend. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.